Biblical Counselling UK, South West London, and has come to talk to us about gentleness in weakness. Um, hi, Helen. Hello. Hello. Um, what does a typical week for you in that world look like? Uh, I'm not sure there is a particularly typical week, uh, but 50% of my time is spent doing things like this, uh, speaking at conferences, going around to churches, helping them uh, with pastoral care, uh, what we call connecting the the tough realities of life to the the riches of scripture. Uh, About half of my week uh, is spent uh, sitting in front of a computer screen, writing resources, books, blogs, uh, an app at the moment, excitingly. Uh, I'm completely out of my comfort zone. I barely use apps, let alone write apps. Um, And then half of my week is spent counselling. And so it all fits nicely uh, into a working week. Marvellous, marvellous. So at the end of that very long working week when you've been incredibly busy... What, what do you do to relax on Saturday night? What's the perfect Saturday night for The you? perfect Saturday night uh, would probably be one or two friends. Oh, see, am I going to lose the room now? A Bond film? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a large Korean takeaway with lashings of kimchi. Wow, wow. that sounds amazing. Okay, wonderful. Well, we're going to pray for you. Um, I'm going to read a passage and then I will hand over. Um, so wonderful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Helen. We thank you that she has come uh, to share her wisdom with us uh, today. And Father, we just pray that you would give her a great clarity and faithfulness and that in our hearts you would be working uh, wondrously so that we would become more faithful and more fruitful ministers of your gospel because of what we have heard here today. And Father, I just pray for Helen's voice that it would not give out... um, and that you would be with her and guide her as she speaks to us this morning. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have a quick reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 28, which you will be familiar with if you woke up for matins this morning. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit." For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. And even the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet to the head, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, for which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating and various kinds of tongues. This is the word of the Lord. Well, who amongst us wants to be weak? It's not one of those concepts that we tend to enjoy in the 21st century world. You watch your films and the hero is strong, vibrant. Maybe there are some out there where there is weakness, but they still persevere. There's still happiness, there's still a sense of humour. Weakness is not something in our 21st century world that we tend to want to embrace. I mean, think about it for a moment. Who in education wants to be the weak student? Who, when lying on their hospital bed, wants to hear the news you have a weak pulse? Who in the uh, football community, of course, of which I know uh, nothing at all, wants to be the weak person in defence? Who wants to be the weak candidate applying for the job? Who, when it comes to debates, wants to be the person with the weak argument? Who, when it comes to New Year's resolutions, wants to be the person with the weak will? Weakness is something that we push away. Weakness is not something that we want to embrace. Of course, there can be compassion for the weak. If my Facebook feed has anything to go by, the number of kittens that get stuck in storm drains or stray dogs that need rescuing from the streets, we see their weakness. We, we want to rescue them and make it better. Maybe we use some of the same kind of vocabulary, the same kind of narratives for some people in developing countries where famine or other hardships hit. Rescue the weak. Let us as powerful people help the weak to get out of their predicament. Or, or maybe more recently we see the kind of terminology of empowering the weak. If we can just give them the right rights, the right context, then they'll be able to stop being weak. They can climb out of the pit themselves. But weakness itself, no one runs headlong towards weakness. As I've spoken to you each over this conference uh, the last couple of days, and I've asked you know, who you are, where you're from. None of you have used the word weak in your description of yourself. 
And I imagine many of us have adopted the world's conception of weakness, even as Christians. We, we don't want it, do we? We don't want to be the weak ordinand, the weak curate, the weak minister, the weak incumbent, the weak bishop, the one whose theology is weak. Is that the reputation we want to have? The one who has a personality that is weak? Communication skills that are weak? Maybe we've adopted the world's thinking too in the way that we approach those who come to us as weak. Maybe we want to, to fix them, to go, yes, to spend a few hours one-to-one with me, pastoral conversations, we'll sort it out, we'll make the weakness go away. Maybe if you just get the right teaching, we can empower you, you know, with your eyes on Jesus to, to stop being weak, to, to go on and be strong in the name of the Lord. Maybe we've found ourselves wanting to walk away from weakness. It's hard. It's unpalatable, it's difficult. We don't always know what to do. Maybe we've tried to help someone who is feeling weak and we've fallen flat on our face. Maybe we've known the exhaustion, the frustration. Maybe our hearts have sunk. Have we said or done something unkind or cruel that we regret in in our exhaustion or our frustration at that weak person? And maybe we don't want to go there again. Maybe we've been on the receiving end of unhelpful care when we felt weak. Maybe people have said or done things to us and we just don't want to go there again. But the reality is, in the local church, in the local community, we are surrounded by weakness at every turn. Let me introduce you anonymously, of course, to a few people that I speak to or see every week. There is the lady who I read the Bible with, I'll try to at least. After a a long and abusive past, uh, she is no longer able to pick up God's word and read it, at least not without self-harming. For her and the abuse that she has received, the connection between church and the God's word and, and pain is so entrenched that she will harm herself just by reading uh, a single verse. Maybe there's uh, another uh, lovely uh, brother in Christ who, who can't sit down the The medication he's on causes him to pace relentlessly. He'll come round to dinner, he'll he'll come round for a chat, but there's no sitting. There's a constant going round my living room, round and round and round again. His body mirroring his mind that goes round in circles, never landing in a place of rational thought. Let me introduce you to my friend that I go walking with uh, most Friday evenings. Her temptation to take her own life is unremitting. But getting her out helps her to think a little bit more clearly. Or my friend with a borderline personality disorder who can phone up to 20 times in a day when she's having a bad day. Or my friend whose father has dementia. The same conversation, time after time after time again, never quite sure where his mind is going to land. Or a congregation member at a neighbouring church who doesn't always remember to put his clothes on during the sermon or to keep them on as the sermon progresses. Long-term profound disability 
people with, uh, uh, struggling with the legacy of, of abuse, high level of mental illness, those whose lives have crashed, maybe short-term after a very traumatic bereavement, those who have just got a moment where life has overwhelmed and they cannot cope any longer. They're in our churches. They're down our streets. They're in our phone books. They're people for whom we have a call of care. But how do we view them? When the messages from the world about weakness are so fix it quickly, make it go away, strengthen it, how, how, do, we, how do we get alongside those people whose weakness doesn't seem to go? Whose weakness is there day after day, week after week, calling on our time, calling on our emotional energy. Well, it should be no surprise that the Bible turns the world's view of weakness on its head. And we're not going to do a full exposition of 1 Corinthians 12. That's not what I'm here to do. But there are some fascinating ways we can reorientate our minds to be more Christ-like as we look at some of its beautiful verses. Verses 1 to 3. They don't seem immediately to have a lot to do with weakness. But take a view with me of verse 3 once more. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed. And no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's that got to do with weakness? It reminds us that all of us, all of us have a deep need for God. None of us can utter something as simple as three words, Jesus is Lord, a statement of fact, a statement of love, a statement of what the world is really like without the help of God. If we let our minds go more widely uh, to the gifts that are mentioned in in verse 7, now to each one is a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. All that we can do is a gift of God as well. Have you ever taken a moment to step back And to think about how much we need God for every single act. The breathing in and out we're doing right now. The very fact the world is turning and we can stand upright or or sit on our chairs. The fact that you're able to, to write with your pens or take notes on your phone. The fact that I'm able to speak all utterly dependent on the Lord. Without him we could do none of those things. Inherently, as human beings... We are weak. There is nothing about us that in and of ourselves means that we have huge capabilities. This is all goodness of God, generosity of God. When we think about weakness, when we get our heads straight, we know that the weakness isn't out there. The weakness is not people coming at us. Weakness in and of ourselves as human beings is all of us. We are people that need We are people that depend. We are people who rely on God for absolutely everything. Now, of course, God in his kindness gives some of us uh, great gifts. Uh, God in his kindness uh, enables us to do uh, many things and we can cooperate with that. Uh, And so on the surface, some people's weakness is a lot more obvious than others. But we're all weak. Let's get that straight in our minds. First off, none of us can sit here going, I'm the strong one, you are the weak one. We all depend on the Lord for all things. 
Well, how does that change us? Do you recoil from that fact? Do you want to reflect on that fact? Do you want to heckle me as we were joking over breakfast? Helen, no, that's not true. No weakness. We are. Every single one of us. And how does that change us? Well, let's go on in the passage. It reminds us that as weak people, who who may be incredibly gifted by God, we have the call to respond to other weak people in two countercultural ways. Verse 21, I need you. Verse 23, I will honour you. Let's look at those in turn because, uh, again, they're the sort of things that might take us uh, by surprise. As we look at that person with dementia, as we look at that person with a profound disability, as we look at that person whose life is falling apart and they don't seem to be able to get out of bed, let alone engage with the world, is, is God really sort of saying to us that we have to look at that person and go, I need you? Well, every member of the body of Christ is essential, isn't it, in Corinthians 1.12? We might be very different. We might have very different roles. We might have very different gifts. Some of us might be suffering. Some of us might be rejoicing. Our contexts are, are poles apart. But all are essential. There's not a single member of our body that is not needed. It's hard to get that mindset when we're looking at that member of the congregation who is so desperately broken, so unable to give (coughs) anything tangible, never going to be able to to fill something on a rotor. But we need them. We need them deeply and profoundly. Why? Well, one reason is that they show us so much about our identity in Christ. Christ which has got absolutely nothing to do with how well we can preach, how eloquently we can teach, how academically we can write a a book, how how beautifully we can uh, lead the music, how how wonderfully we can galvanise children and young people to, to follow Jesus. Our identity in Christ is not about what we do for him. It's about what he has done for us. And those people who cannot give or cannot give very much can show us the beauty, the equality, the wonderful identity that you have just by being a child of God. Looking at that person that can give nothing or almost nothing and seeing that they are just as valuable, just as loved, just as precious, that God delights in them just as much as he delights in us is a a truth that we need to hear loud and clear or at least one that I need to hear loud and clear time and time again, as I so frequently allow my mind to go back to a gospel of works rather than grace. Those who are weak show us our identity. They show us the depths of God's love. They show us the enormity of his grace. They show us the overwhelming nature of his generosity. And they teach us a lot about covenant love about a God who loves us when we had given him nothing. As we love them, as we move towards them, as as we grow in our ability to, to love and keep on loving them, we get a glimpse a little bit more of how God loves us, moving towards us when we could give nothing back, keeping on loving us even when sometimes we walk away. 
We learn so much of his nature. We learn so much of his purposes for human beings. We're all weak. We need the weak. But the church is also a place where weakness is honoured. It's a place where we give special honour, in fact, to those who are weak. Doing so is part of what it means to be united as a church, giving people what they need. Some people will need a lot of support, some people less. But actually, if we're loving each other, if we're all equal, if we're all in this ministry together, then we will give people what they need to be able to walk that faithfulness walk with the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean pushing ourselves to burnouts. I want to put that caveat in there. This is a team game. This is a congregational game. Everyone has a role to play in loving those who need to be loved. As we love others, others are supposed to love us. This is meant to be a circular, collaborative, corporate uh, affair. But it is a call to keep on loving and investing more time in those that need more time. I don't think this is a license for limitless time. I mentioned my friend that can call up to 22 times in a day. I don't think this passage is saying I have to answer the phone all 22 times. But it is saying that I can give that person or should be giving that person more time. It's difficult, isn't it? We, we get our business strategic heads on. Let's look at the people who, who we can grow so we can multiply ministry. And don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking that. Be strategic in ministry. But it's not just the, the young, adventurous, academic, go-getting, gospel-hearted, prayerful evangelists that we invest in. It's those that are broken. Those that we have to sit alongside, quietly, praying. As ministry, uh, one of our big roles is to help people across the finishing line, to help them to get to the place where they see Jesus face to face, and he welcomes them with that well done, good and faithful servant. And some of those people we encourage and spur on on that journey will be people that sprint across the finishing line, preaching God's word, proclaiming it in the face of opposition, with a, a whole list of people that have come to Christ through their ministry. And some of those people we help across the finishing line We will be watching them limp and crawl through the mud, not having any human recognition, not having anything that you could put in a biography other than they kept going in the strength of the Lord. But in ministry, our our role is to help them across the finishing line just as much as to help everybody else. And that is going to take our time. Does that sound a bit revolutionary for a Thursday morning? Does that sound, uh, well, maybe it would be more expedient and convenient at least to have stayed in bed or had another sausage and bit of bacon in the, in the restaurant room? It, wouldn't it be nicer to be able to go back and just carry on? But there is beauty in helping the weak and allowing them to help us in return, maybe in little ways. Uh, There's one particular lady that I walk alongside. I've been walking alongside her for eight years now and have seen only tiny amounts of growth in her mental health struggles and her her self-harming tendencies. But in lockdown, a little envelope dropped through my door. And within that envelope, another six envelopes, one for every Monday morning for the first six weeks in lockdown. A little picture on the front 
a Bible verse on the back and a simple note that said, Helen, I know you're going to be really busy over lockdown. Just read something of Jesus every Monday morning. Will she ever lead a Bible study? No. Will she ever do a one-to-one with somebody? No. Will she ever lead a youth work? No. Will she ever have the courage to, to lead prayers or do a reading in church? I very much doubt it. But in lockdown, did she lighten my heart? Did she help me remember something beautiful about my dependency on the Lord? Did she fuel me with God's word? Absolutely. The little things can make a world of difference. And she has helped me grow as I have helped her. But but the title of this session is Gentleness to the Weak. So maybe what we should do for for the rest of the time is, is to be thinking about just how we relate to those people around us who are weak. Because it is so easy, I'm sure we have all seen in in different churches and different circumstances, that tendency to be strident with weak. Come on, you can do it. Let's make the effort. If we just fix our eyes on Jesus, we can do this. Come on, let's, let's go for it. But do you hear the tone in 1 Corinthians 12? Do you see the tenderness in Paul's word? These are people you need. These are people that you're joined to. These are people in your family. These are people that you cry with when they cry, that you rejoice with when they rejoice. These are people that you are intimately acquainted with and will be for the whole of eternity. Do you hear that familial tone? Do you you see the tenderness in his words? Well, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Paul is telling us to be incredibly gentle with those who are weak. The gentleness that we see there is rooted very much in the person and the work of Christ. That gentleness is is rooted in the mission of our Saviour. Matthew 12, do you remember that quotation from the Old Testament where Jesus says he has come and he's not going to break a bruised reed. He is going to take those lives who are are struggling, who are are bruised, who are battered and and be gentle with them. That is the Saviour we have. That is why he came. Do you remember uh, that invitation he gives in Matthew 11 to come to me because I am gentle? Our gentleness to others is rooted in the person and work of Christ. Now, now hold on a minute, Helen, you might say. Uh, gentle Jesus, uh, meek and mild, uh, that's not entirely the picture of the saviour we've got. And, and I haven't conveniently forgotten that he turned over tables and called people bruiser vipers occasionally. You know, that is probably not gentleness uh, through and through. But if we look at the context, if we look at the audience of the different times of, and ways that Jesus communicates, the false teachers, the people leading the weak astray, the people putting burdens on the weak, they're the ones he was strong with. Those who were weak, those who were broken, those who were burdened, those that were shunned, those that were pushed away from society, those that were ignored or derided by the religious elite at the time, they are the ones that Jesus was gentle with. And as well as looking at the mission of Jesus, as well as hearing that Matthew 11 invitation of Jesus to come to the one who is gentle, we are reminded in scripture that it is our call to be gentle too. You know, if we are serious about growing as Christians, 
then we will be growing in gentleness. That, that is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. If we want to be people that are maturing uh, over years and years and years, then we should be seeing ourselves becoming increasingly gentle alongside patient and kind and, and loving. Is that a barometer check that we ever do in our hearts? I, I must admit it's not one that I tend to ask of myself. I was, I was joking with uh, someone here this morning that I'd been asked to do this talk on gentleness. Uh, I think uh, the invitation came approximately 25 minutes after I'd just been unendingly grumpy with somebody that was weak. <laughs> It's so, so easy to let the tiredness and the pressures and the relentlessness of ministry push us towards a harsher stance. But, but whether we're in ministry or not, our call is to grow, to be more like Christ, sanctification, beauty. And part of that is gentleness. As we look back over the last year, the last five years, the last ten years, can we see ourselves, even under pressure, even under provocation, becoming more gentle? more kind but it's not just a matter of aspiration is that what we want to be gentleness is a matter of obedience Ephesians 4 gives us a direct command be gentle bear with one another if we're serious about obeying Christ if we're serious about living life as he says then gentleness is part of the package it doesn't mean we need to become all fluffy and people can walk all over us. You know, Jesus gives us a, 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 a sort of gentleness with a backbone. This is gentleness that can stand up for what is good and right. This is gentleness that can keep being gentle under great pressure. This is gentleness that is countercultural. This is gentleness that stands up for Christ in a world that would go astray. But are we obedient? Do we take that obedience as seriously as we do for all the other obedient passages? You know, be holy. Are we, are we shunning pornography? You know, be, be truthful. Uh, are we holding firm to the faith? Of, of course, we're aiming at that, but, but be gentle. Is that up there in our minds as something that we need to do and non-negotiable? That's part of our Christian life. And as leaders particularly, and I am very humble to speaking to a lot of church leaders, a role that I don't hold myself. Do you remember that 1 Timothy 3 call? One of the criteria to be a leader in God's church is gentleness. I don't know enough about the selection processes of the Church of England to know how much that is emphasised day by day as you have those conversations, but it's there in Scripture. As a leader... It's not just about being sober. It's not just about being able to teach well. It's not just about being able to lead. It's not just about evangelizing. It's gentle. That is who we are called to be. And of course, all of that is motivated by God's incredible provision of gentleness to us. He's not a remote God standing up there grumpily saying, will you just get on with being gentle, please? Seriously, that wasn't gentle enough. I'd like it if you'd make a bit more of an effort. Tone it down. Gentle. No, that's not the God we have. We have a God who, as the prodigal son reminds us, when we were in the pigsty, when we were far from him, when we were in rebellion, he enabled us to turn around and come back to him. And how did he treat us? Well, it's about time you returned. No. Well, quite frankly, once you've done a few chores, and then I'll welcome you back into the house. No. 
Well, seriously, can you just make sure you don't do it again? You can come back this time, but, you know, three strikes and you're out, and you, quite frankly, you're already pushing it. No. This is the God that runs towards us with arms outstretched. I'm so glad you're home. Welcome back. I've been waiting for you. This is a God that lavishes us with gentleness. This is a God who adores us. This is the God whose arms are around us. We are safe and secure in his arms. He has us in his family and he is not going to let us go. This is the God who, who sent his son to die for us. This is the God who who chose us. This is the God who adopted us. This is the God who indwells us. This is the God who lavishes us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. This is the God who is going to lead us as a shepherd, providing for us and protecting us every single day until that moment when we see him face to face and we will know his glory perfectly and we will know perfection for the whole of eternity. We will be able to praise him in perfection. Never again feeling that pain of being alone or or, or in physical pain or, or sadness or grief. That's all gone. This is the God who is so gentle with us. This is the God when we do something wrong for the 17th time that week, just gives us the invitation to come back. Come on, come back. We'll try again. This is the God whose grace does not run out. And as we allow ourselves to revel in that God to be overwhelmed with the goodness that he has lavished into our life as we see the gentleness with which we are held, then, then we are able to be gentle to those who are weak around us. What did that look like in Jesus' ministry? Well, he was deeply gentle with Christian, non-Christians who were weak. Do you remember that lovely encounter with the woman at the well in John 4? That woman who, by societal standards, would would have been seen as weak purely because she was a woman, and in that culture, uh, that would have been the assumption. This was a woman who was religiously unclean. This was a a woman who was morally unclean. This was a woman who had no doubt been hurt. I, I don't think the five failed marriages would have been just her fault, Uh, There would have been some uh, fault on the part of the men as well. This was a woman who was alone, collecting water in the middle of the day by herself, normally a communal activity of the women of the village. How did Jesus' gentleness apply to her? He moved towards her. This woman that no respectable religious leader would ever approach, he walked towards or moved towards her. He asked her, for a drink. He set aside all the reputational <laughs> considerations that he might have had. He knew that people would have been scandalized by what he was about to do, but he moved towards her nevertheless. He knew she was in need, great spiritual need. And so he didn't care what the world thought. He went towards her and started a conversation. He gave her time. He was exhausted, he was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry. The disciples are off doing their shopping trip, he was alone. Oh, it would have been so easy, wouldn't it, to have some me time, just some downtime. I can pick up ministry again after we've had lunch. But he saw the need and he walked and moved towards her. And he used such gentle words. I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't pull back from what was true. 
he, he pointed out that she wasn't worshipping God in spirit and truth. She, he, he pointed out that, you know, five husbands and now living with another man probably wasn't the way to be going. But he was gentle. He was kind. Do you think that woman would have felt condemned at the end of that conversation? Absolutely not. What did she do? She went from house to house, knocking on those doors, going, come and see the man who knows everything that has happened the gentleness of that encounter, the truth of that encounter as well. Change that woman's life. What about uh, the Apostle Peter in John chapter 21? There we see Jesus' gentleness to Christians that have messed up spectacularly. Good old Peter. He likes to think he's strong, doesn't he? He shoots his mouth off. I'll go with you, Jesus. Don't worry, I'm never going to abandon you. I'll be the one that's always there for you. We'll get it sorted, you and me. Don't you worry. But he falls flat on his face, doesn't he? I'll never deny you. Yes, you will. Yes, you did. Not once. Not twice. But three times. I don't know him. I don't follow him. No, 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 he's nothing, nothing to do with me. Peter was weak. He had messed up. The relationship with the one he loved the most, with the one he knew the best, was laying in tatters. He'd gone back to fishing. And not very well. He'd been out all night, hadn't caught a thing. He's confused. I'm guessing he doesn't particularly understand this resurrection thing. Well, I mean, don't particularly blame him for that. It is a little odd the first time you come across it. But how does Jesus meet this broken man, this man of faith, this man that, that wanted so much to do ministry well, but messed it all up? Do you notice in John 21 that, that big catch of fish? It happened before. Peter and Jesus had had that chat of restoration. He blessed Peter incredibly, generously, passionately before things had been sorted out. And it was only then, after he'd blessed Peter, after he'd fed Peter, they'd had breakfast together, that they had that little one-to-one. And Jesus was so gentle with him. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Come, Peter, do do you love me? There's symbolism there. There's deep relationship there. There is a bond there. Peter was so weak, and yet Jesus met him with gentleness and restored him and enabled Peter to go on and do incredible things. And, of course, it's, it's not just Jesus. We see that 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about being like a child, being gentle with the church there. False teachers were abounding. There was opposition to the true gospel. And yet Paul undertook to be gentle. Not wishy-washy, not letting things slide, but gentle in all that he said and did. The Bible encourages us to own our weakness. The Bible encourages us to look at the weak and see the truth. We need you. 
The Bible encourages us to to treat the weak with special honour. The Bible encourages us to look at the mission and person of Christ and to be blown away by his gentleness. The Bible encourages us to listen to its teaching and to see that us growing in gentleness is part of our sanctification. It's part of our obedience. It's part of what it means to lead. And so that leaves us in a place where we are designed to be people who encourage each other to love and keep on loving, to listen and keep on listening, to encourage and keep on encouraging, to serve and keep on serving, and to persevere even through the chaos. And I'm not doubting how much chaos there can be when we're walking alongside the weak. We do it as a team so no one gets burnt out. Actually, having a group of people, the whole church involved in loving one another is a necessity. If just one person as a minister tries to love all the weak people and everyone else sits back, that's a recipe for disaster. That does not work. You will end up crashing and burning out of ministry if that's the model you're working with. But if we all get involved, if we train up our congregations to get involved, then it does work. We need rest. All of us need rest. We need boundaries. I I mentioned in my seminar yesterday that I have a a rule of thumb that unless you are in police custody or in A&E, you cannot call me before 8 in the morning or after 10 o'clock at night. (coughs) Because quite frankly, I'm as pastoral as a cactus at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it has to be a real emergency if you're going to get any of my care. And we have to be mindful of safeguarding, of course. There are some people who, whose behaviour and whose struggles and whose weakness means that they can be a threat. We, we don't ignore that. We put safeguards in place. Sometimes we meet in groups, not on one-on-ones. Sometimes we, we liaise with professionals and we work out what context it's safe for people to come to and what context it's not. All of those things need to be in the back of our mind. But they are just tools for the trade. The big headline picture is we love And we keep loving. What does that mean for my lady who who self-harms every time uh, she reads God's word? It means that for the time being, at least, I don't ask her to read God's word. Because every time she does that, she hears her father's voice and is reminded of the pain. She sits quietly with her eyes closed and I read God's word to her. So she's able to hear God's word in a new voice. A voice that gradually replaces the old messages of abuse that she's had. It means that my Bible studies with people that are are very weak are about uh, a fifth of the length of the Bible studies I do with people who aren't weak. It means I I don't ask uh, the weak in the congregation to do preparation before the Bible studies. I don't give them a guide and say, here are the 14 questions we're going to work through. We get to our respective, you know, get to our living room. We curl up on our respective sofas, probably with a blanket and a mug of tea. And we say, okay, let's just spend a bit of time talking to our heavenly dad. Let's look at a couple of verses. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about us? What should we do in response? Nothing more than that. It means that I know in my diary, in my big green diary, I know the anniversary dates where different people who are weak are going to crumble and fall because they remember a death, they remember an incident that has torn their lives apart. And either I or somebody in my team will send them a card or invite them round for a meal. It means I talk about how we can help those people that want to phone 20 times a day. That we can have a a little rotor of people that sometimes that person will do the helping and then sometimes that person will do the helping. 
We can sit with that person and remind them they are loved. I can go shopping with people like that because I need to go shopping anyway, but it gives me one-on-one time with that person. It means they feel loved. It means they've had contact. It means they've had connection. And I've still got plenty of other time to see other people because I've integrated them into something I'm naturally doing anyway. It means that when someone uh, in the church decides to disrobe Miss Sermon, we just quietly move them to a side room uh, and help them to reclothe. It's not a big thing. Nobody laughs. No one uh, makes any comments about it. We just quietly take them to one side and say, time to put your clothes on now. When that person is pacing and pacing and pacing, I stand. I don't sit. So I can still be on the same eye level as them. Not standing, sitting, doing something different, emphasising how different their life is to mine. When someone isn't able to leave the house to come to Bible study, we've been doing a lot of this recently, we go online. But that's not just a lockdown thing. Even when we're back to having eight people in the room, we can still have our phone zooming somebody who can't be there even if it's just for a little while. You're not up to the whole Bible study, that's okay. Look, I'll I'll, I'll Zoom you at nine o'clock. Come and share your prayer requests. And if you want to hang around, great. If not, you can go back to bed. No problem. Be people that will find little things for those people to do. Even if it's just folding bits of paper in half. Let them serve. Walking alongside the weak with gentleness is a beautiful privilege and call. But just as we close, a a little PS. That includes you when you are weak. Be gentle with yourself. God doesn't ask you to be gentle with everybody except for the person that stares back at the mirror each morning. There will be days weeks, months in ministry where you feel unendingly weak. And it's so tempting, isn't it, to go, well, I've got responsibilities, just need to crack on. Right, um, yes, no, no problem, I'm just going to preach that sermon and I'm not going to get any help, I'm, I'm fine, and there's no one that can really help me anyway. For goodness sake, just get your act together, pull yourself together, Helen, do that talk. I know you're feeling rubbish, but someone's got to give a sermon. We can't just have a service without a sermon, get on with it. We can beat ourselves up. We can berate ourselves for our weakness. No, 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 says Jesus. You're part of the body of Christ too. That gentleness is not just something you give away. That gentleness is something you receive and apply to your own heart too. You can have a rest. It's okay. You can delegate. I know sometimes that's easier than others, but it's okay. If something doesn't happen as well as it might, that's okay. Sometimes it's all right to sit and cry. Sometimes it's, it's all right to say, I've just got to take a time out and go for a walk and pray and have a nice meal. I, I just need to be gentle. And I need others to be gentle to me. Allow people to be gentle to you because that is part of what it means to be united with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But whatever situation we're in, whether we are speaking to the weak, whether we are being weak, 
whether we are surrounded by many weak, whether there is just one person in our congregation that we've been thinking about for the last 45 minutes. Let me end by reminding you of the Titus call. Titus 3 and verses uh, 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. Can we pray? Father God, you are an immeasurably gentle God, a God who is uh, far more gentle with us than we deserve. Our Lord, we thank you for your generosity, your kindness, your patience and your grace. And Father, as people that, that long to be faithful to you, as people who long to be more like you, we pray that you will help each of us to be more gentle with those around Father, there'll be some of us in this room who find uh, gentleness easy, some of us in this room who find gentleness desperately hard. But we pray, Lord, that you will meet each of us where we're at and lead us evermore into the likeness of your Son. And Father, for those people that we've been thinking about in our congregation, those people who are weak and sometimes we struggle to know how to help, we pray that in the coming days and months and years, you will bless us and them with all that we need to spur each other on to love and good works, to help each other get across that finishing line with hearts overflowing with the gentleness of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for ministering the gentleness of Christ's heart to us, Helen, um, and so gently urging us to gentleness as we um, have our own dealings with the weak. Uh, we're going to respond first um, to this in sung worship, and then we will have um, some time for questions afterwards. If you'd like to sit down, we have about 10 minutes time, um, 10 minutes uh, to have any questions that people might have. Okay, well, no one is jumping, so I'm going to start. Um, Helen, you spoke a little bit about gentleness in weakness and showing that to ourselves when we ourselves um, are being weak. Now, if we're serving um, not as part of a huge staff team where there are people to lean upon in our own moments of weakness... How do we show ourselves gentleness and kindness when there isn't anyone to lean on? And I'm not suggesting there's a quick and easy answer to that that you can put into practice tomorrow. But I think if you're looking for, for the long game, that there are ways of uh, making relationships with other neighbouring churches or nearby churches that uh, might be theologically like-minded, uh, where you can talk together and pray together. Uh, you don't have to agree on every jot and tittle, but just being generally on, on the same page, uh, where you can actually share burdens with one another, pray with one another. Fraternals can be good for that kind of thing sometimes. But there's also a sense in which God does give every church um, what, what it needs. Uh, now, that's not necessarily the same as what we would want always, uh, but there is a sense we want to be confident that within our congregations, God has given us who we need to be able to do the ministry that he is calling us to. 
uh, or at least you know for us to be praying for those extra people to come along that in confidence that he will provide them uh, in the not too distant future uh, and so looking at how we can raise people up to be taking some of those roles now, initially, that can be hugely irritating because, quite frankly, most of the time we can do things far more quickly and effectively ourselves uh, than we can in, in giving them to somebody else that's, that's learning. But if you take that training uh, perspective um, uh, you know, seriously for a number of years, hopefully you will get to that point. I, I realise there are going to be some churches where maybe you're turning that church around a little bit and it's incredibly hard. Uh, but they will get to the point where there will be some people able to shoulder those burdens. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of every member ministry is, is that you can do things like that. Uh, and you can be creative in, in, in how you do that. I mean, sometimes I start really small with people. You don't know how to pray out loud. I'm going to write you a post-it note, and I'm just going to leave some gaps. So I've written the prayer, and then you're just going to fill in four words. Uh, and then you can write your own prayer. Uh, and then we'll talk about that prayer. Uh, and then you can write a longer prayer. Uh, and then I'm going to get you to say that prayer uh, in a very small gathering. Uh, and then in a, you know, a year or two's time. They'll be ready to be leading the prayers in other. And that's a very small example, but you can do that with preaching, you can do that with administration, you can do that with pastoral care. And you might find there are people in your congregations who have uh, amazing gifts that you had known nothing about. Um, in my last church, uh, actually, in both my current church and my last church, we did an, an audit of the congregation to find out what their current giftings are uh, and actually what their dreams are, how they would like to grow. Now, Clearly, that is an exercise that has some danger to it because sometimes you find someone has uh, a deep desire to do something that you sit there in the horror going, that's just not happening. And now you've opened up uh, the gates to that conversation. Mm-hmm. But, but most of the time, uh, you, you will find people that go, you know what, I, I just love to know how to pray with people or I just love to know how, how to have more confidence reading the Bible. And whether you are sitting down, exegeting uh, John's Gospel together or whether you are standing in front of a microphone going, in order to be able to project well, you need to have you know, good uh, lung capacity. So I'd like you to take a deep breath and say the alphabet six times and watch the entire congregation giggle. All of these things are ways that you can help people grow. And eventually, uh, hopefully, there will be people that can help. That's incredibly useful. Thank you. Um, George? Uh, DC UK has been doing some excellent training for a, for a few years now. So we've now got some people who are trained and wonderful. Have you got any advice, guidance about how best to encourage, deploy, support people who have this training now? How are they best you know, used and also supported in local churches? Thank you. And just for the benefit of those who might not know, uh, the BCUK Biblical Counselling UK training is a three-year certificate course uh, in biblical counselling, uh, which is largely sort of a, a model of pastoral care uh, within uh, the local church, although it can be used for very low-level struggles and, and more complex ones uh, as well. Uh, and I think uh, people that have been through that training hopefully will already be in touch with their pastors because some of the assignments are things like chat to your pastor about how you can use this in your local church because we're very passionate about our training never being divorced from the local church and and the the vision of that church but always fully integrated into it um but i think uh using people like that uh, to do intentional one-to-one ministry discipleship ministry with those that maybe don't naturally fit into a normal one-to-one pattern Uh, So it might be with an addict who isn't necessarily going to turn up and be 
sober when you're having the one-to-one they, they might well be able to handle something like that it might be uh, walking alongside a mum with postnatal depression that can't get to small group at the moment uh, but is able to, to nurture somebody through that kind of season by helping them keep their eyes on Jesus not not replicating uh, or replacing medical input but but complementing that um uh, but also, you, you can actually be, what we've done in our church is I, I've, we set up a, a care team, one of the pastors and I did that. Uh, and so there's now like a reservoir of people within the church uh, that the ministers or the elders or the small group leaders can call upon. Uh, and I've got people within that care team with a, a smorgasbord of gifts. So I have some people that quite frankly wouldn't know how to do a Bible study if their life depended on it. But they're really, really great at mowing lawns. Uh, and so when the little old lady breaks her hip uh, and can't mow a lawn anymore, I know who I can ring uh, and they can come. Uh, I've also got people that are really good at, at cooking meals for people. I've got people that uh, can do bereavement counselling. I've got people that can walk alongside uh, those who are anxious. I've got people that can uh, know how to do first response to domestic abuse and, and trafficking uh, well. Um, I've got people that are trained and working as psychiatrists but are willing to, to give a little bit of their time to the church as well. And so if you just look at who you've got, look at what their gifts are, you can have a little reservoir team of people that become a resource for you as a pastor and for the whole congregation. And you can draw on and sometimes you can delegate stuff or sometimes you can co-counsel with people. You know, if you've got someone, you know, most people here are male. If you've got someone in your congregation who's female that's going through a tough time, you know, meet with that person and that female member of staff that's had, a female member of the congregation that's had uh, a little bit of training and together nurture them uh, in their faith. Uh, and of course, you can think big and set up a counselling centre to serve the local community if you want to, but that's probably uh, a big step up uh, from most. How can we show love and gentleness to someone who experiences such a complex panoply of difficulties that it feels like, okay, let's try and help and grow in this area. It feels like you can just make all these other things a lot worse, and then if you don't tackle something else, it makes something else a lot worse. Human beings are incredibly complex, aren't they? Uh, And that is why I I always encourage us to be, you know, people like that are probably going to be in contact with social services or a GP or a psychiatrist or something like that. Uh, And whilst there's not a a huge flow from the secular services to the local church, there is usually a provision uh, with any of these secular services to take a friend to a meeting. Uh, And so... um, I often say, well, why don't you take uh, someone from the church to your next meeting? And then we'll get a better idea of what they're wanting you to do. And therefore, we have a better idea of how we can support you in that. So encourage those links where possible. Um, uh, And then negotiate what it would be helpful uh, for the church to do. Now, I I often think, play it simple, what the secular services are never going to do is point someone for Jesus. Uh, so that, that's our kind of non-negotiable remit. Uh, but if actually we can give them a lift to an appointment or if we can provide them with meals or if we can uh, set up a little support group for people who have addictions, as a number of churches do, uh, then that can, can help as well. But always see ourselves as just a part of the solution, but a part of the solution that is wholeheartedly rooted in Jesus. Uh, and usually we can do something to help if we go in with that humble, collaborative, Christ-centred attitude. Yeah. Uh, Helen, thanks ever so much for all your input. Really helpful. Um, I love the skills audit thing, which in my experience has been the best and worst thing you could ever do in a church. When you get someone who 
is really key to exercise a, a great gift they've got. Um, and you know it would be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. How do you handle that conversation? Because I always handled it very badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that will vary on why it is catastrophic. So it might be that they just simply don't have the gifts that they think they've got. Uh, that person that thinks they are hugely pastoral uh, and actually manage to cause an explosion every time they walk in to a room. Or, or it might be that they genuinely do have those gifts, but their life is so out of control uh, that actually they, they, shouldn't, they can't safely be using those gifts at the moment because you know, their own struggles and, or their own godliness is, is nowhere near uh, where it should be. And so there are different reasons why it can be a disaster. Uh, I think that the second category tends to be the easier category to, to, to handle because you've probably got a very godly person there that is genuinely gifted and you can just get alongside them. And, and what I tend to use is, especially if it's in pastoral care, uh, and one of the good principles of um, biblical <coughs> counselling is that we self-counsel before we counsel others. So uh, we don't uh, allow ourselves to speak into the lives of other people until we allow other people to speak into our lives and until we are effective at uh, speaking into our own lives biblically. And so uh, you can have a conversation there going, that's a great aim, but the first step is always this. So let's, let's see how, how you're going to receive this. Let's, let's go through a process where people speak into your life, where, where you practice godliness. And then once, once we've done that for a little while, once we've seen you grow, then we'll pick up that conversation about you helping others. Mm-hmm. That one's not too bad. The one where people think they've got the gifts, uh, but they really haven't, is a a lot more tricky. Um, And uh, this is where the whole speaking the truth in love thing comes in. um, And that's very rarely an easy conversation. And I would suggest it's not a a one-on-one conversation. I'd suggest things like, well, you may well have that gift. I mean, I I don't have, you know, the sight of God, but I, you know, I have to be honest, I haven't, I haven't, I've noticed these other gifts in you a bit more than I've noticed this gift. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd really like you to consider prayerfully using your gifts in this area first, because actually I think that would benefit the church most. So you're actually giving them something positive uh, to link onto. If, however, they still keep pushing, you'll go, well, maybe, maybe we need a little bit of help in me discerning uh, those gifts in you. So let's talk to other people and see if they can see those gifts in you. Uh, and so you bring in your elders, deacons, PCT, whatever the structure of your church happens to be. Um, people that you could trust to speak honestly uh, and insightfully. And of course, it may be that that person does have a gift. We've just missed it. Um, uh, but actually, if there are a number of people going, actually, I, I really don't think that is your gift. I think the pastor's right that actually your gift is over here. Then that person hopefully will, will listen at that point. If, however, they are completely entrenched. That is the point, I'm afraid, as people in leadership, we have to go, I'm really sorry, that's just not going to happen. And I know that's going to hurt you. And we can talk about that hurt. uh, And I can explain my reasons why I'm doing that, because my aim is not to wound you. But actually, as as someone in leadership in this church, I I have to make decisions that I think is right. And this is the decision. Um, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's the kind of uh, way I go. Yeah. We've actually reached the end of our time, so thank you so much, Helen. You've been extremely helpful. If we can show our appreciation.